Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to have back for a second conversation about his new book, Donald Edward Casebolt. Thanks so much for joining all of us today. Great to be here. So we're talking about your new book, which I'll mention is 40% off right now, a Christmas sale that's happening with and stock your publishers. It's available online. The title is Father Miller's Daughter. It's about Ellen White, the young Ellen White, Ellen Harmon White. And uh, I want us to focus today on the points you're making in chapter six about an important figure in the Millerite movement. Last uh, conversation that we had, we talked about Father Miller, William Miller, but now today we're going to be focused on a character, an important person who plays a pivotal role in getting us from the predictions around 1843 into the very famous Great Disappointment, October 22, 1844. That's not Miller, that's Snow. And Snow is important because many of his ideas and methods influence Ellen White and uh, remain influential in Adventism, especially in hermeneutics and how we think about studying the Bible today. So thank you for your hard work on this, Don, and I'm looking forward to you helping us understand this guy, Snow. Who was he? Yeah, he was quite an interesting character, and uh, he came into the Millerite movement rather late. Snow actually took over the movement from William Miller. William Miller had predicted that the world would end about 1843, and that was defined as the last day of the Jewish year of 1843, which happened to be in our year, 1844, March 21. And when that didn't happen, it kind of left everybody wondering what the heck was going on. And Mr. Snow came up with a, a solution to that. But before I mention the solution, I want to just give a little personal background for Mr. Miller. He was raised in the Congregational Church, but had become what he called a hardened infidel by early adulthood. Are we to, we're talking about snow now, or are we talking about, yeah, yeah great. Talking about snow. So in 1839, his brother gave him a book on Miller, and he thought, oh, this is a bunch of hogwash. But he read it, he read it uh, and reread it for about three months. And while reading this book, he had, had a conversion experience. And so he joined a congregational church in autumn of 1840. This is when Millerism is already going pretty full blast. But since they didn't um, support his ideas, support Miller's ideas or support Snow's ideas about knowing the definite day, he withdrew with them, withdrew from their fellowship. In June 1842, he was at a Millerite camp meeting in East Kensington, New Hampshire, and decided to give himself up completely to promoting the second Adventist message. 
So he had a rather lightning experience here. And in December 1843, he was ordained as a Millerite preacher. And when I say that ordained, um, this is kind of by a self-selected group of other sort of lay preachers that didn't have much ministerial training necessarily, but the movement had felt that it needed to define itself more precisely. It was becoming more like a specific denomination with specific beliefs. So December 1843, and then already in 1844, he's writing letters which are very important, which uh, define the, the what we now know as the midnight cry. So he's really, immer he's kind of like moving into the group and then um, attaining more and more um, uh, influence over the Millerites, right? Yeah, I've argued that in fact, it should be called first phase is the Millerite movement, but the second phase is the Snowite movement because he really kind of uh, bulldozed Mr. Miller out of the way and became the new shining uh, meteorite in, in the firmament. And there's a name for that, that as an Adventist growing up, I've heard, and that's what, what he really, uh, what, what his big idea was, which is the midnight cry. So let's talk a little bit about the way, so Miller had made these predictions and he was, I, what, 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 you could almost say it's reading your book that it's like he was um, kind of losing um, his influence over the organization and snow begins to take over with a new concept. Uh, how do you, how do you describe that transition? Yeah, this is when Adventists both before and after the great disappointment said, this is the point where the, the virgins were slumbering and sleeping. They were kind of in a torpor. Uh, all their fond hopes had been dashed. They didn't really quite know where to go because they'd been so convinced that the end of the world was happening in spring of 1844 that uh, they, they'd almost experienced a knockout blow. And snow comes along and gives them a precise date and a new rationale to hang on to. And he calls this the midnight cry. And they were so excited by this that they entitled one of their journals or not like the signs of the times, mm -hmm. the true midnight cry. And they weren't satisfied with just the true, but they had to have three explanations, ex exclamation points be behind that. When I was doing my book for the copy editing, the copy editor noticed that explanation. They said, well, where are these three exclamation points coming from? Are they original? Are you putting those in or where? And I said, no, those are original. They, this is the two midnight cry with exclamation marks tripled. Yeah, I, I appreciated reading that um, and, and knowing that you had made a very historically accurate uh, point there. Uh, I wonder if those are the three angels messages. I don't know. Or maybe they're just really excited to uh, take uh about this new idea. Let's talk a little bit about what the midnight cry is and the dating associated with it and how he concocted this belief uh, out of a couple of verses of scripture. Perhaps the overview first, and then we'll get down into the specifics. Yes. 
Well, he said he was giving a typological explanation, and he pointed out that certain events in the in Christ's uh, life had happened in the springtime and had had their typological and anti-typological fulfillment in spring. But he said the second coming that's going to be in autumn, and specifically he ended up saying it had to be the Karaite idea of the Day of Atonement. It wasn't merely autumn in general; it was the Day of Atonement, and not according to when the Jews in the general, the rabbinic Jews, calculated it, which would have been September of eighteen forty-four. But he said it was October. Of eight, specifically October 22, 1844. So I want to jump in here and really emphasize that uh, word, Karite. Uh, thanks to you, I got very interested in this. And they are a very small sect of Judaism that dates back um, into maybe the first uh, uh, century BCE. Um, and they are fascinating for a variety of reasons. There's not that many around anymore, but they, um, are, like you said, not rabbinic Jews in that they don't, um, pay attention. They don't, they don't take seriously the, um, uh, all the writings about interpretation. So the Midrash around the Torah. So I think what's interesting is how do we get to October is by um, not just looking at the Jewish calendar, but Snow found a very specific uh, group of Jews who only rely on Torah and do not r rely on any um, teachers' interpretations of it. They're very, uh, you could, there's notes of um, kind of radical um uh, relativism, each person is sort of an interpreter interpreter of Torah on their own and kind of a level playing field rather than some rabbis or scholars getting more weight um, based on the knowledge that they have. So anyone can interpret. Um, and obviously, Snow finds that attractive, apparently. Well, I think the really key thing chronologically is if you want to know when the Day of Atonement is and any, any of the Jewish feasts, there was there were verses in the Bible which told you how to calculate that. So there were two specific ways to calculate that. One, you had to wait until the barley grain was a certain, had reached a certain stage of ripeness. And the second one was it had to be when the new moon appeared. And if you had cloud cover on a certain day when it was appearing, you couldn't really tell physically whether the moon had appeared. So it could be off by one month so to speak. And then when the Jews were dispersed from Palestine, if you don't have a Jewish rabbi there in Palestine to calculate and observe when the barley is ripening or when the when the new moon is appearing at a certain point of time, if they're in China or Russia or in the North American continent or South American continent, they couldn't figure that. So basically the, the main body of Jews had just used regular astronomical reckoning because we'd gotten sufficiently, even if you couldn't see the moon, you knew it was there. So in this particular year of 1844, 
the Karaites said the Day of Atonement was happening in October, whereas the rabbinical Jews all celebrated in September. And the real kicker is we have no knowledge that actually there were any Karaite Jews in Palestine in 1844 to observe this at, at all. So it was just sort of a theoretical concept. And Since we're going deep down into this, I'll keep going because I really, you're emphasizing a really important point about that, you know, we think, okay, we end up at 1844, great disappointment, but important date in Adventist theology around the sanctuary. <laughs> So this is why it's important to really understand how we end up with this date um, and and our kind of theological opinions. The Karaites are so sort of extreme. Can I, just, can I just interrupt you and say, that really to put it in a nutshell, it's like the movement of Christ from the holy to the most holy place in heaven is determined by the barley in Palestine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the Karaites are so um, kind of um strict about these kind of very minor interpretive ideas that uh much of rabbinic judaism lights candles on the sabbath and they've come up with some ways of saying that's okay despite some language around you know not having a fire on the sabbath day um you can light them you know anyway i won't go into that but the karaites do not and they will literally sit in a freezing cold house rather than light uh, a fire and unplug refrigerators in their home during the Sabbath so that there's not even electricity um, being used. So I think it's really important to recognize that this is who snow turns to is, is he takes a couple of verses and maybe let's talk about those verses that he strings together to get us to uh, October 22. Okay. Um, well, essentially, when Millerite's first date failed, they had to come up with an explanation for the failure of that date. Which is this sort of tearing time. They, they look at the story of the wise and foolish virgins, and Jesus is delayed, and that's when the wise virgin, virgins do not um, give up hope, and uh, so they're rewarded. They, they think of themselves as these wise virgins, as you've already said, and then they're looking for, okay, when will the bridegroom come? And they start to look through the scriptures, and Snow uh, has a theory that begins to um, uh, draw attention, and he becomes the new, the new guy with the new theory that the Millerites, many, not all, go with his new theory. Um, but the early Adventists do. So I'm going to start with Ezekiel 12, 22 through 24, and what he had to say about that. And he says in June 27 of 1844 in a letter, quote, it was necessary that a mistake should be made in regard to the ending of the days, and that this mistake should be general among the expectants of the kingdom in order that their faith might be tried. This is a theme that Ellen White will say in several different things. You know, your faith is being tried by these mistakes. Had not such a mistake been made, there are some prophecies which could never have been completely fulfilled. Such, for instance, Ezekiel 12, 22. Then he quotes it. 
Son of man, what is that proverb that ye have in the land of Israel, saying the days are prolonged and every vision faileth? So he takes something that is actually applicable to several centuries BC and says something in Ezekiel's time was fulfilled in 1844, 1843, and that it actually Miller had Miller's prediction had to have failed in order to have been fulfilled, which is quite a paradox. And the other thing I discovered was this this text in Ezekiel is quoted by Otis Nichol in 1846 as one of the prime proofs of the validity of Ellen White's ministry and her visions. And as late as 1884, she makes the same reference to Ezekiel 22. And I had never heard of this. I had heard of Habakkuk in the tearing time, which is mm -hmm. one of the next ones. So this is really uh, helpful because it's important to recognize these texts come out of books written in a specific time and place uh, around the Bap Babylonian captivity before um, and after as Jews are trying to understand what's happened um, in their relationship with God and their relationship with the, the countries around, which I think some of these other verses will point out, and Snow and the early Adventists are taking verses or even just parts of a verse written um, hundreds of years before and, and thinking... Sometimes even more like 700 BC when the northern tribes were threatened, not, yeah. not even a couple, well, 150 years later under the Babylonian threat. Good point. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so, um, and, and these various verses are part of what creates the midnight cry, the reason for 1844, uh, October 22, and the sanctuary doctrine. These all get linked together. Um, and Ellen White is uh, uh, along for the ride and uh, all of that. So let's jump into another one of these verses, if you don't mind, just to help folks uh, kind of Jeremiah hear the logic that they're trying to uh, connect. Yeah. So he also links Jeremiah 51, 45 into the specific years of 43. And he quotes first uh, from Jeremiah 51, 45, quote, unquote, a rumor shall both come one year, and he, then he says that was 1843, and after that there shall come in another year a rumor, and he says that was the message of 1844, and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. That's quoting directly from the scripture. Then he asks a rhetorical question. He says, what is the rumor here spoken of? It is the Advent message. And what is the first year of the message? It is the Jewish year, 1843. And God foresaw the passing by of that year of the rumor. He saw that it necessary lest the hearts of his people should faint. So he uses the use of two occurrences of the word year and specifically says, well, this is 1843 and this is 1844, which, by the way, this is the same type of logic where we got the third angel's message, which is first angel's message is supposedly in 1837, 
the second one in 1843, and then third one in 1844. It's on the same basic methodology. Yeah, this this allegorical methodology, which we talked about last time in the podcast, is so fascinating to see it being used um, by these um, untrained um, uh, early Advent believers, these Millerites who were really scrambling to try to make sense of their um, their their failed prophecies and using the same method to come up with new ones. You really talk about uh, what it was like to be within the group, and I want to kind of drop this um, great writing that you have here to uh, help folks understand the the what it was like to be a Millerite in um, 1844 here, July and August, you paint a really great picture. And imagine you're in this meeting and you're hearing someone grab these texts from various parts of the Bible and link them together. So um, Don writes, from March about through July and August of 1844, they conceived of the tarrying time as a brief but indefinite period, but they had a deep yearning for a definite date. A and then you describe here, uh, at Exeter, there were meetings that continued nearly all night and were attended with great excitement and noise of shouting and clapping of hands and singular gestures and exercises. Some had shouted themselves speechless. Others had literally blistered their hands through much clapping. Snow was quite literally the very man which the day and hour demanded. So he would hold forth in these meetings, grabbing various texts and explain what had happened, why Jesus didn't come in 1843, and why everyone should be hopeful because just in a few months, Jesus would be coming back thanks to linking Ezekiel and Habakkuk and any other texts that you'd like to uh, tell us about? Well, you alluded to the Habakkuk one, which like I said, they, they said the vision of Habakkuk was the same as the vision of Daniel 8, even though there's a, like about a 70-year uh, variation. Daniel wasn't even born when Habakkuk was written, so it can't very well occur to him. But it's interesting that the historicist mode of interpreting had no idea of history, ironically. Yeah. They just picked these verses as if they could be written any time, any century, and applied to their own century. And maybe this would be the time I wanted to tell you about an anecdote that happened to me when I was in the MDiv program at Andrews University. Yeah. And can you pull up in your Bible, or shall I do it in my Bible? Ezekiel 16.6 was the was the t was the text, and this illustrates how even yet today. People are attracted to this odd mode of, of in interpreting, and it's certainly not literal at all. You have it? Um, I do not yet. Um, I I'll, can... I'll, go, I'll go ahead and take it then. Okay. The word exactly is, And when I passed by thee, and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live yea i said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood live do you know what that means what, no what, tell what, me what's the contemporary understanding of that 
Well, this is sort of a, a, a parable that the prophet is saying to, to the Israelites, and he's likening the Israelites to a newborn baby that's still covered in its bloody afterbirth, being found in the desert, and how ugly and unattractive Israel was as this ugly, bloody baby. And yet God loved it nonetheless. That's that's the original meaning. Hmm. Well, when I was in the MDiv program, my wife is a nurse. She had a nurse colleague. And this nurse colleague had a major problem with what's called metarrhagia, which is kind of like one of the ladies that Jesus had had an issue of blood. So yeah. he had extreme menstrual bleeding that lasted for days and was very heavy. And so she let me know that she took this as a promise text, you know, ABC claim, so that when it said at the end, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood live, this meant she was going to be healed of this condition, literally, and this, this verse was addressed to her in the present time. So having the verses taken out of any total, any historical context and applied to you personally, or as a movement is the essence of this type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because, um, I've heard, uh, Adventist, uh, theologians sort of disparage various, uh, critical theories. So ways that you approach the Bible, uh, new historicism is one formalism is another. Another one is reader response. The idea that people is a kind of, formal way of talking about what people do is they read a piece of poetry and they respond, you know, oh, that makes, you know, that way of describing a tree connects with the way that I have felt about a tree in the past or that sort of thing. I'm oversimplifying quite a bit here, but this, uh, you know, these theologians say, oh, we would never do this. This is so subjective, so relative, so postmodern. And yet you can see um, the Advent, the early Adventists, Adventists throughout time, and maybe even those very theologians doing this with uh, the construction of um, some parts of Adventist theology, where it just becomes totally about me right now in a way it's very egotistical it's the bible is written just for me to explain my time and my experience people claim promises that's one thing but constructing actual doctrine about uh, out of of uh, these various um texts and thinking that they were there to help someone in 1844 uh, can understand why jesus would return obviously was a failure or was it? It created a whole movement. It created a whole movement. Well, I wanted to um, bring us back to the, the midnight cry, which was yes, great. pointed out Snow's major contribution and hooked that up with what that meant to Ellen White and what she says about the midnight cry. And so I'm quoting from her first vision. She says, while praying at the family altar, the Holy Ghost fell on me, and I seemed to be rising higher and higher, far above the dark world. I turned to look for the Advent people in the world, but I could not find them. But a voice said to me, look again and look a little higher. At this, I raised my eyes and saw a straight and narrow path cast up high above the world. And I want to say that her first vision 
basically is trying to tell people what happened in October 22, 1844. She didn't give anything about a shut door or an investigative judgment. It was just basically what the heck happened. And so now we're coming to the critical part. She says, on this path, the Advent people were traveling to the city, which is at the farther end of the path. They had a bright light set up behind them. A bright light set up behind them at the first end of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry. And the midnight cry historically, as it is, as we've been saying, the construction of Mr. Snow, who barely becomes a Millerite himself, and in about two years, he's putting out important letters and supplanting Mr. Miller, the, the farmer, who is a self-taught uh, exegete. And he is determining the, the direction of the movement and saying this, this very specific date has to be, and he, he is so certain of it, he says, it's even more certain than if an angel came down from heaven and told you or if we raised a person from the dead, and why can't you, you stupid people understand that it's, it's this exact date is so obvious? And paradoxically, also, he says, now, you, yeah, I've, I've heard it objected to that no man will know the day or the hour, but he says, they might have, that might have been true in the present tense in Palestine in Jesus' time that they don't know the day or the hour, but we certainly can know it today because we are so wise. And it says the wise shall understand. Hmm. So uh, I point out this paragraph in, in Helen Harmon's initial vision clearly identifies the midnight cry as Snow's seven-month movement. It was the bright light set up behind them. So this is the phase of Millerism from August 44 to October 22. And then Ellen White continues, the bright light set up behind them is identified in her following description as, quote, a glorious light originating from Christ's right arm. This, she asserts, is Snow's midnight cry. Excuse me. Thus, she asserts that Snow's midnight cry was a direct result of Christ's personal action. Jesus would encourage them, and I'm quoting again from her first vision, Jesus would encourage them by raising his glorious right arm and from his Right arm came a glorious light which waved over the Advent band and they shouted hallelujah. So this glorious white bright light, the midnight cry, basically is Mr. Snow, which is rather an extraordinary statement. Yeah. And then he goes on with about five or six pages proving this by these various biblical proofs, some of which we've just discussed in Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah. And uh, he still goes back and relies on the 15 absolute proofs of Mr. Miller. He just dates them uh, a little differently. And one of the more curious ones, he says it, it has to be in the fall because one of the proofs is the 6,000-year proof. And we've come through exactly 6,000 years of history. And creation must have happened in the fall. So in the autumn, Adam could collect the apples because that's the only time they ripened was in the autumn, so it had to be autumn. <laughs> These details that you've uncovered, Don, are so, so rich. Thank you. Um, so 
let's um, let's kind of bring it home here and talk about the fact that um, Adventist uh, professors at the seminary have um, endorsed this methodology. You quote from Domstig here, White believed that God directed the mind of William Miller to the prophecies and gave him great light. She wrote that she saw angels of God repeatedly visiting the chosen one, talking about Miller. And, um, and you have Snow picking up on Miller's methodology, like Ellen White, believing in these 15 proofs that we talked about last week that, that you do a great job of explaining. It's not just the 2300 days that gets us to around 1844. It's a variety of, uh, of uh, verses linked together that get us there, and um, and Ellen White is is very committed to uh, all of this. How do you see this um, uh, impacting um, the the mind of Ellen White? Something that you pay a lot of attention to, and let me emphasize: this is the teenage mind of Ellen White. Well, she was. Um very attracted by the mathematical precision of this, which I might say also, you know, this was the original attraction for Miller. Miller was a deist or sort of an atheist before he got this uh, light. Snow was an atheist. They've both actually been rather active in their local atheistical associations. And yet when they saw this mathematical proof, it really convinced them. So it, it obviously not only convinced adults, but it was especially convincing to Ellen White. And that's where she incorporates this into her first vision, saying Snow's midnight cry is the light that's coming directly from Jesus's right hand. And this is why she held to this explanation her entire life and picked the day. And the only variation on that was basically we have this well, it was the right date, but the wrong event. Well, I would say it was the right event. It was the wrong date. Some of these things did refer to Christ's second coming. It just hasn't happened yet. So it's not the right date and, and not vice versa. But she was so committed to these proofs of landing on a date. Well, could land on a specific date for the second coming. We said no. All these proofs would just land on a specific date for the beginning of the investigative judgment or the two apartment ministry or moving from one place, the holy place to the most holy place. That's great. Um, so next week we're going to talk about another character and that's O.R.L. Crozier. And I'm looking forward to um, continuing your really careful study of this early Adventist history as a helpful way of, of, of us understanding the history of the Adventist hermeneutic um, as well, which has been um, uh, turned into a book by the Biblical Re uh, Research Institute from the General Conference. So um, these things have implications for the construction of Adventist theology and, um, and uh, Adventist identity. Uh, anything you want to close with as we wrap uh, this conversation about the Snowite movement up? 
Yeah. So basically the reason Crozier is so important is because Ellen White says he was given the true light on the sanctuary. And so it's uh, like her endorsement of Miller. It's almost like she's saying, oh, the angels go to guiding Miller and maybe not an angel literally is guiding Mr. Crozier, but he's been given the true light. Therefore, that basically determined Adventist doctrine. And uh, one thing that we skipped over that I'd like to bring in on Mr. Snow before we totally leave that yeah. behind us. If you look at his paper called The Midnight Cry of August 22, 1844, he has all these 15 biblical proofs, but I would like to ask, you know, when I was a kid, they said the, 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 the noble Bereans, they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so or not. Yeah. Well, just read those 15 proofs. I was going to bore people to death by reading some of them today, I guess. Um, and we haven't had the, the time, but if you actually read them, you'll say, what does this have to do with proving a specific day? And yet he tries to use these myriad of texts and this is also what impacted Ellen White's mind. She was very impressed by him using so many, 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 many texts. But as the Biblical Research Committee or the, the Daniel and Revelation Committee say, it's not the quantity of texts, it's the quality of the procedure. Yeah. And as we've indicated, they had a very poor procedure and it wasn't literal at all. And I want to emphasize that again. And we're going to find the same thing in Crozier. You find this unbroken chain of not literal, but allegorical, what um, F.D. Nickel called far-fetched and fanciful explanations. And he was the foremost uh, apologist for the, the midnight cry. Yeah. Really quickly on those 15 proofs, you've written about those on the Spectrum website, so folks can read oh. some of those articles, and I know you'll be doing more of those. So it's a, it's a really a great project um, showing how this allegorical, typological, historicist hermeneutic that is um, woven through the construction of various uh, doctrines uh, shows up in, um, in Miller and in Ellen White's endorsement of Miller. Let me just say a final word on Mr. Snow before we bury him. When, when things didn't turn out as he predicted, he became convinced that he was the eschatological Elijah the prophet and started his own publishing uh, magazine called The True Day Star. His followers believed he had been raised up quote, and consecrated by the Holy Ghost, the Blessed Spirit of God, guides him in the high and special work which is committed to him of expounding the sacred scriptures for the infallible guidancy of the household of faith. And it was in this rule as Elijah the prophet that he specifically denounced Miller, Himes, Litch, and Storrs, and all who rejected the 1820, October 1822 date. So Ellen White, had a, a sympathy with this. These people who, like she says, rashly denied the light behind them and fell off the path. Well, that was his point too. And he sent a letter to secular authorities threatening them with, quote, war, famine, pestilence, and destruction, signing his missive, Samuel Sheffield Snow, premier of King Jesus. <laughs> As a, uh, 
Dr. Knight says in his book, a couple of historians said that Snow ended up as sort of this cult leader with small, far out, small group or insane, and or maybe it was the two simultaneously. Hmm. Um, just knowing his latter end also gives you some idea of his potential credibility for the midnight cry before it failed. That's great uh, history. Thank you so much. A tragedy and yet important for us to recognize the way that he uh, influences Adventist thinking today. Yes. Uh, and Merlin Burt, the secretary or assistant secretary, I forget his title, but he's essentially sort of the head of the white estate. Yeah. Mentions the ORL closure, uses an allegorical, not literal thing. And I was rather, rather surprised to read that. He doesn't draw the conclusions, perhaps explicitly, that I do that's not a poor method. But he does mention that it's an allegorical method of interpretation and that this, this, this is the foundation of key Adventist unique beliefs. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to digging more into um, Crozier's ideas, and we'll be talking about the sanctuary. Maybe weave a little Desmond Ford in there, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. So thanks so much for talking with all of us today. Thank you. And I look forward to our next conversation. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive.